like to say good evening to everyone. I want to uh, start out very quickly by uh, saying that I appreciate the opportunity to speak, appreciate the elders letting all of the, the, uh, the men at various times to take a, a spot in the roster. And uh, so it's something that I always look forward to. Um, tonight, I would like to speak primarily to the young folks. Uh, sometimes when you get like as old as I am, which is only like mid-50s-ish, uh, you kind of get set in your ways and stuff. Not that, not that we can't change. But what I'm going to speak on this evening I think is, is very uh, primarily important to the young people because they go to school, they're out a lot, uh, with a lot of people who believe various things. Some may be religious, some may not be. And they're going to learn a lot of things, and things maybe that you parents don't want them to learn and bring home. So I don't know how much of this they're going to be able to follow and, and, and pick up on, but uh, if you have a notebook for them and a pen, this might be a great opportunity for them to jot a few things down to think about. And, uh, of course, it, 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 that's the same thing that goes for everybody. But... Um, I, uh, I think this would be good for them to, to hear. And so uh, I've got a lot of material. I'm going to jump right in, and uh, let's, let's get going. So this evening I want to talk about sobriety, and I appreciate not only the songs that were led. Uh, they went along with the lesson very, very well about not yielding to temptation. It's really easy to get out in the world around people who are uh, drinking alcohol and drugs, smoking who knows what, and doing things that can be detrimental to your soul. And so we need to be very careful, and I appreciate the songs about not yielding to temptation, about being holy. Remember, when you're out among people, it doesn't really matter what they think about you as much as it matters what God thinks about you. And so the songs that we sang about being holy, be holy all the time. And you know what? Even when no one else is looking, God is looking. So be holy. And when it comes to what we looked at in the scripture reading, in 1 Peter, um, here in chapter 1 and verse 13, the scripture said, therefore, and I'm reading out of the New King James Version. Most of what I have is from the New King James. It says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is primarily what we're going to be talking about this evening. And so we want to ask the question, what did Peter mean when he said to be sober? Now, various translations have different words there, but the word in the Greek from which this word comes from, sober, is nepho. And nepho, as vines, most of you have heard of vines expository dictionary, it gives a definition, signifies to be free from the influence of intoxicants. And so Peter here is referring to and admonishing these Christians, these pilgrims, to be free from the influence of intoxicants. Now, you might be saying, well, is he, does he mean that literally or does he mean that figuratively? Well, everything that I've looked at, according to this word, has more of a literal connotation. There are other words that have more of a figurative connotation, and we'll look at it in a little bit. But you might be asking, well, what is an intoxicant? I think most of us might know, but if you're younger, you may not know what an intoxicant is. Well, if you pull up a dictionary, I just happened to pull up Britannica.com, 
And an intoxicant is something, it says, such as an alcoholic drink, that causes people to become excited or confused and less able to control what they say or do. It's an intoxicating substance. So, if Peter is literally here saying, be sober, if he's saying, be free from an intoxicating substance, something that can excite you or confuse you or cause you to not have control over yourself, to lose self-control. And there are a lot of passages on that. We don't have time to get to those tonight. But self-control is very important to the child of God. So basically what what we're looking at here, to be free from something that's going to cause me to lose self-control or to go haywire, what's to be free from something mean? Well, I like to think in simple terms. If my lawn is free from weeds, means I don't have any, right? And if my house is free from spiders, and it's not because this is Tennessee and man, there's spiders everywhere. But if my house was free from spiders, I don't have any. Well, by the same token, if my mind is free from intoxicants, I don't have any. That's the ideal situation. That's what Peter's talking about. That's what we need to shoot for as people that are trying to be holy and pure and follow after God. And so if I'm free from the influence of intoxicants, I don't have any. I have not introduced any substances into my body by drinking them, by smoking them, by injecting them, by doing anything, rubbing them on my skin, which will reduce or impair my ability to think clearly and act responsibly. And as people that are going to be subject to the judgment of God, we have to be able to think clearly and act responsibly in our lives because there are a lot of things that we read in the Bible. There are things that we don't do in order to be pure and holy. There are things that we do want to do, but we need to be able to make up our minds and say, look, is this good for me to do or not? But if I'm hazy and if I'm confused and if I'm muddled because I've ingested something that I probably shouldn't have and now I can't think clearly, what what good am I? Now I can't make rational decisions and and decide whether something is a sin or not. And in Genesis, what did God tell Cain? God told Cain, look, sin lies at the door. You need to, paraphrasing, you need to be able to decide, are you going to do this thing or not? And that's the burden that we all have. Are we going to decide whether we're going to do a thing or not? But if I am not free from intoxicants, That may not be me making that decision. And it may not be me talking or me doing the driving or me doing whatever action it is. So let's take a a brief moment here. Let's let's have a medical moment like I would try to consider it and, and look at some statistics. So in 2021, I found out that 84% of people 18 years of age or older who were polled in this poll, reported that they drank alcohol at some point in their lifetime. That number has been steadily increasing over the last decade or more. Think about that. That's a lot of people. That's more than 75% of the people. If you're thinking, you know, a quarter of the people, half the people, three quarters of the people, that's more than that. That's That's halfway to everybody. That's a lot of people. And another thing that you can find on the internet very easily Alcohol-related fatalities and injuries. 
Drinking even a small amount of alcohol can lead to dangerous and even deadly situations because it can impair a person's judgment, their coordination, and their reaction time. This increases the risk of falls, car crashes, and other incidents. So it's a serious thing. It's something we need to really think about. Alcohol is a factor in about 30% of suicides. Think about that, 30% of suicides. And fatal motor crash, 40% of fatal burn injuries, 50% of fatal drownings and homicides, and 65% of fatal falls. So just in the first five minutes of the lesson, does it sound like a good idea to be adding alcohol to whatever we're doing that might cause us to be one of these statistics? Just from the standpoint of bodily harm, not a good idea. So I want the young kids to really think about this. It's, it's a bad thing. People who, who drink, if they plan to drive, use machinery, perform other activities, that's a bad thing. So just from that standpoint, bad, don't do it. Now, what about alcohol-related health problems? You know, I've got several of my kids in the, the, the health field now, and I hear stuff all the time. Especially when they were in school, you'd hear things, you'd think, wow, that's incredible. Well, drinking is associated with a number of health problems and can make certain chronic health problems even worse. Half of liver, liver diseases in the United States are caused by alcohol. Well, uh, those increasing among men and young people, it's, it's pretty fantastic how things are changing. Research has shown an important association between alcohol consumption and breast cancer. Uh, the risk of liver disease, cardiovascular disease, depression, stomach bleeding, cancers of all kinds of places that I don't even need to name. Um, people who misuse alcohol also have problems managing conditions such as diabetes, high blood pressure, pain, sleep disorder. Do you know, boy, I wish I had more time. I could go into, I, I really had a chemistry moment because, you know, that's what I did for a little while. But I'll tell you what, ethanol or ethyl alcohol that's what it is if you're, if you're drinking drinks like this. It's in there. We'll, we'll cover that in just a teeny bit and a little bit more. Folks, it's a poison. It is a very strong um, diluter of, of all kinds of chemicals, a solvent. Um, it does all kinds of things. You know, it starts great fires. But, I mean, there's so many things wrong with us trying to put that in here. It, it, it's just wrong. But for whatever reason, the world is fascinated with the emotional and mental trip they can get out of reality by ingesting crazy things like alcohol and other things. And it's bad news. What does it do? Uh, thinking about babies coming into the world in our family pretty soon. What, what does alcohol do to, to babies? Well, during pregnancy, it can cause birth defects developmental disabilities, collectively known as FASD, fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. It can cause all kind of crazy stuff, and we don't have time to get into all these things uh, in this short time. But because, as I read, because there is no known safe level of alcohol for a developing baby, women who are pregnant or might be pregnant should not drink whatsoever. And my stance is, if you're trying to please God and do what's right, don't, don't even do it because there's so many problems that can come up. So that's your medical moment for this evening. And we may have another one later on. 
But let's think about this. You know, we're talking about drink. What's a drink? What is a drink? Well, there's a neat little chart on the internet that you can pull up, and it kind of gives you an idea. And I'm not doing this so that you'll be interested in any of this. You know, hopefully that's not the case, but just to help you understand a little bit. So all the way on the far side, we have a 12-ounce beer that has about 5% alcohol. Some may be more, some may be less. And then you get to something stronger, malt liquor, and you can see the alcohol content for the particular amount of ounces in that container is about seven. And then you move table wine is 12. Then there's stronger wines that are even more. And then you go up on the scale of hard alcohol up to almost pure alcohol if you ever got up to that point. Most people don't do that. However, none of these are good. None of these are good. You sh we shouldn't be touching any of them. And I believe I've got a pretty good um, argument for why not that I want to present to you. But you know, for most people, when they hear the terms alcohol or intoxicating drink, they might think about, well, you know, the English words beer or wine, they come to mind. And a lot of religious people have disagreements on whether you should drink any at all or if you can, how much before it's wrong. A lot of people have those questions. A lot of people have arguments. There are a lot of religious people that their, their church, their um, denomination might teach that, oh, yeah, it's no problem. It's okay. Or anywhere from no, you shouldn't at all to, oh, yeah, you can drink so much and and so forth. And we're going to talk a little bit about that as well. But in order to understand that a little bit better, and why is it when we normally hear the word wine, uh, we have maybe a misunderstanding about why there's a word in the Bible translated as wine in English. And in some places, it looks like it's cool and it's okay. And I mean, you know, Jesus did it and his disciples and there's a lot of questions, and I'm going to try to answer those tonight to the best of my ability in the time allotted. And so, let's, let's look at some of these terms in the Bible real quickly. And I'm not going to go and, and read through all of these, but there are a lot of different terms. Asis, Hometz, Chemer, Yayin, and on. And you can see basically what they are, and you can see some references to them in the Bible. And I'm not claiming to understand exactly how all of these are used or, or you know, the particular context maybe that they need to be used in. Um, most of these, context is the big word. What is the context and what, what it's talking about? And that's really what you need to look at in order to determine, is this talking about something that's good or not good? Is this talking about something that's, that's grape juice, like yayin? Is it talking about something maybe like vinegar or sour wine? Is it talking about something like oinos in the New Testament in the Greek? A term that can be used sometimes for either, either fermented or non-fermented. Context decides. And so we need to be very careful if we look at a word and just say, oh yeah, that's what that means. And think about the word translated as love. Well, you might be saying, well, there's more than one word. That's exactly right. That's my point. And so there is agape and there is phileo and there are other words that are similar to that, storge and, and a few others that, that I've forgotten. But there are a lot of different terms that can be translated different ways and even in different translations of the Bible. So we've got to be very careful. Well, 
Wine is used 231 times in the King James Version. But it's translated from many different words like these, some with vastly different meanings. And so when I see the word wine in the Bible, I shouldn't automatically think wine. Oh, yeah, that's like all those shelves and shelves of, of bottles that I see at Kroger. Because you can't equate what they had with what we have today. You can't always just automatically say, oh, yeah, that's the same thing, because mostly it was not. So some folks have this question, you know, doesn't the fact that it was wine mean that it was fermented, that it contained alcohol? I mean, they didn't have refrigeration and vacuum sealing back then, right? Well, that's a good question. Let's take a look at that. And I want to tell you this evening that there were three main methods of preserving unfermented wine, of taking what they called wine, which was started out as grape juice, and they could preserve it so that it would not go bad, so that it wouldn't either undergo rotting or acetous fermentation. We know that uh, vinegar ends up in that direction. Or so that it wouldn't ferment on the ethanol side and become something that would, you know, poison your brain. Well, three main methods, and I wanted to look at these real quickly. First of all, the most common method was to boil the juice to a thick syrup or condensation. You know, when you go to the store and buy a can of soup, most of them say they're condensed because what happens is they boil water out of them. And so you always have to add water to that and mix it up and you can have yourself some soup. Do you all remember, and it's been a long time, so I don't know if they still have this or not, but do you remember going to the store and getting like a 12-ounce can of concentrated juice, orange juice, grape juice, and all that, and you take it home, and that, that crazy plastic seal that you have to try to pull off and then pop the lid on, and then getting it out of there is a nightmare. It's like, how in the world do I get this big lump of frozen syrup out of there? And then you mix up, what, like three cans worth of water? Man, I used to live on that when I was little, because it was cheap, and, you know, that's what we did, just add water. Well, it's amazing how way back 2,000 years or more, they figured out, you know, if we cook this stuff down, we can get it to where it's not going to go bad. And that's exactly what they did. The water was evaporated and the concentrate had such a high level of sugar that fermentation could not take place. Herman Borhave, a guy that I read about, he wrote this thing called Elements of Chemistry. And he said, by boiling the juice of the richest grapes... It loses all of its aptitude for fermentation and may afterwards be preserved for years without undergoing any further change. And I thought that was pretty interesting. And you know what? You can see the writings of people that lived a long time ago, over 2,000 years ago, who said the same thing. In fact, they were writing, basically telling us how they did it to keep their grape juice from spoiling and going bad or either rotting or, or being inflamed with alcohol. And so this guy named Columella, writing in the first century, said in Italy and Greece, it was common to boil their wines. Hmm. Virgil, he was a Roman poet. He said in order to make wine keep, they used to boil the juice down to a half to a third of the original volume. And so by doing that, it would be condensed. Water would evaporate off of it. And it would last. Uh, the Mishnah teaches that the Jews were in the habit of using boiled wine. 
This is the main reason why wine was mixed with water, not because it was so strong with alcohol. You know, sometimes we read in the Bible about mixing wine. We're going to look at this in a little bit. We might be thinking, man, what kind of concoction were they making? Most of the time, it was just to get it from their thick syrup to something thin that they could drink with their meal. So, wasn't because it was so strong, but it was a, a syrup. And just like those concentrated juices today, you know, we, we learn a lot from these folks and maybe we don't even realize where it comes from. So the point is, wine doesn't always refer to an alcoholic beverage. Back in the day, it mostly didn't. Well, another thing to think about, I, we talk about them boiling it down, but what happens when it's time to use it now so they can pull it out? There were different instructions recorded for reconstituting the syrup depending on the kind of wine being used. And these are historical documents. You can find them. You can pull them up and read them. This guy named Hesiod, a Greek poet, said in the summer months, one part wine to three parts water was correct. So you get your syrup, you add water to it, there you go. Just like I did when I was a kid. And that wasn't too long ago, 40-something years ago. This guy named Hippocrates, the father of medicine, he said for Thracian wine, one part wine to 20 parts water was proper. So they must have had theirs really thick and then maybe wanted to drink it really lean. And that's fine. That's fine. But see, we, we have more evidence here that when you read the word wine, don't automatically think that, man, Jesus and his disciples, they had a couple drinks. No wonder they were in the upper room for a long time. No, no, that's not what we're talking about at all. That's not the, the way we need to think. Well, something else. And a, a, a passage that I love, I love these passages that um, they personify wisdom. Proverbs 9, wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her meat. She has mixed her wine. And I used to think before I did some studying, man, is that, is that right? I mean, were they just having like a drinking party here or what? But again, the point is, if we think about it, think about it from the right frame of mind and don't just take the worldly view of it. What was she doing? Probably getting out her syrup, mixing water, reconstituting it so that people could come and eat bread and drink juice so that they could have a, a meal together. So it's pretty impressive, I think, to be able to read these things, maybe in a little different light than, than perhaps people might automatically think. So boiled wine was the kind that was used for the Passover. And I say that because Lightfoot says that every man, woman, and child drank four cups. If you think about the Passover meal, they had the lamb, they had the bread, they had the bitter herbs, they had the wine that they were using, and they did these things in order. We don't really have time to go into that, but you might have, have seen this before, and they have these certain courses throughout the meal that they did, and this, according to scholars, is how they did it. And you might be thinking about this. When is Passover? It's early spring, right? When do grapes ripen? Midsummer, late summer, depending on what they are. How did they keep their grapes good for eight months? They had to do something, right? They had to do something. And so in order for Jesus and the disciples to do their meal and everybody else, where are they going to get this stuff from? Where are they going to get... Grape juice that they were able to keep. And according to Lightfoot and others, he says, 
No, they, they didn't use alcoholic stuff. They used good stuff, and there's reasons for that. I, I take their word for it. I don't know. I'm not a scholar. But uh, evidently, this is the wine that Jesus used with his disciples because of what they say the law required and that the leaven had to be removed from their homes. We'll look at a, a verse or two here in a little bit on that. So there's a second way that they could uh, keep this preserved, and that was by filtration. And I won't spend a lot of time on this, but basically with this method, the gluten or the yeast was separated from the juice with the gluten absent fermentation could not take place. This, according to the Greeks, was called castratum, and it meant to remove the strength. So a fellow by the name of Plutarch, he wrote, wine is rendered feeble in strength when it is frequently filtered. The strength or spirit thus being excluded, the wine neither inflames the brain nor infests the mind and passions and is much more pleasant to drink. Isn't that refreshing to hear that there were people that said, we don't want it to be alcoholic because it just causes us a lot of grief. This guy named Pliny, I used to think it was Pliny until I did a little digging, plenty, who knew? He wrote, the most useful wine has all its force or strength broken by the filter. Do you hear that? The most useful wine. So these folks weren't all debauched and stuff. And you know, I used, to, I used to think watching Westerns, it's like, why is it in every Western, everyone goes into the, the, the saloon, everyone's drinking whiskey and stuff, that used to mess with my mind. I used to think, man, that's just what everybody does. But back in the day, folks, no, it wasn't what they did. So sometimes we get kind of a, a bad perception of things if we don't do a little digging and find out what did they really do. Well, the third way, subsidence, it's just a fancy way for refrigeration. Now, they didn't have GE and Kenmore and, and you know, they didn't have the icebox method, but... Juice kept at 45 degrees or less, we are told, cannot ferment like it normally would. If the juice is kept cool for a certain time, the gluten will settle the yeast to the bottom of the juice, and the juice can be scooped off or the bottom can be filtered out or whatever. And they say that it has almost a, a nil um, chance of fermenting after that. In fact, this, this guy with the funny name, Pliny, he said, when describing this wine called aigluces, which means always sweet, he said they plunge the casks immediately after they are filled from the vat into water until winter has passed away and the wine has acquired the habit of being cold. So who knew? They didn't need refrigerators. They just cap it off and dunk it under cold water somewhere in the wintertime when it's really cold and hey, there you go. So... Historical documents indicate that the unfermented juice could be stored for long periods of time and the unfermented juice was called wine. You've seen that in almost all of these quotes. What they called wine was non-alcoholic. And so I beg you, when you read through the Bible and you see the English word wine, try to take it in a different light because perhaps like me, when you used to read it before, you thought... Man, I don't, I don't know. I mean, were they, were they getting drunk? Were they, you know, getting a little crazy or what was going on? Well, evidently not. Uh, I'm going to have to skip a few things because I'm just running out of time. They could add things to, to, to wine. There were bad men that added things to, to wine um, to make it more potent. 
and they made intoxicating drink. Here's a couple passages, and basically it's condemned. It's condemned. Now, there were some cases where they needed a little something hard and intoxicating, and um, I'll look at it later, but it was basically because you couldn't go to the drugstore. Somebody's over here sick and dying, and they needed something because they're in excruciating pain. What did you do? You got out some of this for, for medicine, you know? Here's a prescription. Take some of this, man. Well, there's a lot of other things we could talk about. And here's another passage here that deals with, you know, people that go looking for strong drink. And in Proverbs 23, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has contentions, who has complaints? Basically, when you read through here, you see it's, it's basically somebody that's going in search of mixed wine. And this evidently isn't the mixed wine as in I took my concentrate and added water. This is the mixed wine as in somebody made some really strong stuff and I'm looking to get wasted kind of mixed wine. Um, like say they would add honey, they would increase the sugar, they would do what they can. They, it, they were limited in how hard it could get because they didn't have distillation so they could only maybe bring it up to about 14%. That's another little part of the chemistry lesson. But you know, um, distillation wasn't invented until about 1100. So quite a long time before people figured out how they could get it stronger than that. And they would add different things like wormwood and hellebore uh, and different things. But you know, think about these things in their context. And there is a contrast in wines in the Bible. One is the cause of intoxication and violence, and misery, and woe, and is poison. The other is the occasion of comfort and peace. One is the cause of apostasy and self-destruction. The other, an offering of worship on the altar of God. One is a symbol of divine wrath. The other is a symbol of spiritual blessings. And so context is what is going to tell us what it was that we were talking about. Now, quickly, let's look at a few passages that may cause some folks a little confusion. First of all, I want to look at the wedding at Cana. You know, here's one of those passages where Jesus turned 120 to 130 gallons of water into wine. So somebody might ask, why can't we drink wine today at weddings and parties? Well, first of all, let's ask ourselves the question, was Jesus at a banquet or a party where they were drinking intoxicating drink? Can we answer that? If so, how would you prove it? That's the big thing. What is it are we looking for? Are we looking to justify our current practice or are we trying to figure out what it was that they did? Remember, wine was a term that was used for a broad spectrum of drinks. As we're reading though, especially, they were trying to keep it from fermenting because that was the best way to use it. Another question, were Jesus and the apostles and Mary and everyone else drinking adult beverages? Is that what we're saying? Again, how would we prove that? If you assume that it was indeed an adult beverage that they were drinking, what you end up with saying is that Jesus would have violated what the Holy Spirit would later reveal to Peter when he said, you should not be doing these things. And the people had already drunk all that was provided, and then Jesus provided them with more. Did he provide them with alcoholic wine or non-alcoholic wine? See, there are so many questions that we need to ask on this and not just assume the worst or 
what might fit what I'm currently doing in my life. Well, Dr. S.M. Isaacs, a Jewish rabbi, he said the Jews do not on their feast for sacred purposes, including the marriage feast, ever use any kind of fermented drinks. In their offerings, both public and private, they employ the fruit of the vine. According to Lightfoot, the Jews used wine mixed from boiled syrup. This would indicate that the servants were told to fill the pots to the rim with water so that they would know that no wine, syrup, or concentrate had been added. I don't know whether you agree with that or not, but folks, it's an absolutely perfectly fine way of understanding those passages. I have an opinion on it. You form your own opinion. But give them the benefit of the doubt. What about this? Some people say, and there are some churches that say, oh, you know, in the Lord's Supper, you, you got to use fermented al uh, alcoholic wine. But one thing to think about is, in the Lord's Supper, it always uses the phrase fruit of the vine. Does it, does it, ever, use wine? Does it ever use a term that could even be construed as something that's alcoholic? That's a good question. The Jews not only used unleavened bread for the Passover, I read, but they also used unleavened wine. So what I read in the historical documents and from scholars and commentators, I will tell you this though, in all, uh, in all frankness, there were some that said, oh no, they, you know, sometimes they, they did whatever they wanted to do. But it seemed to me like they, they were more modern, more liberal-minded uh, scholarship that was kind of going the way of, yeah, they could do whatever they wanted to do. It didn't matter. More conservative scholarship said, no, it'd be a sin for them to use anything with, uh, with leaven in it. And they went back to scriptures like this that said, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwellings, you shall have no leaven. And so if they really were to remove all the leaven, they would have to remove it from everything, their food and their drink. And that... Rabbi Isaacs, he had something to say about that. Again, we, we read the first part of this a little bit ago, but he said, no, they employ the fruit of the vine, fresh grapes, unfermented grape juice. He said fermentation to them was a symbol of corruption. So take it or leave it. But there's another guy, Gesenius. He was a Hebrew scholar. He said leaven applied to the wine as well as to the bread. So don't follow some people's notion and say, oh yeah, it's absolutely fine. We can, uh, we can go get some bottles of wine from Kroger and dump them out in the, well, of course, we don't pass around the trays anymore. I don't know. Can you get those little things in uh, fermented? Hopefully not. That'd be kind of crazy. But anyway, let's go on because we're running out of time. Um, can I use the same amount of time that, that Alan used last week? Because I'm already over mine. I'm sorry. I threw you under the bus, buddy. Timothy was admonished to drink wine. People say, oh, look, you know, Paul said, Timothy, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Well, first off, think about this. Isn't it clear that Timothy had not been drinking wine and had to be told to drink it? So if I look at this and I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. So he partook of the Lord's Supper and he did other things. It seems to me if he's being told to do this and it's for a health issue, that it very likely could have been maybe some alcoholic uh, wine here. And if he's being told to do this for his stomach and not only water, maybe they had bad water. I mean, they didn't have chlorination back then. 
okay? It's a, it's a very likely scenario. He had bad water. Maybe he had bugs in his gut. Maybe he was sick. There's a lot of things that we can think about here. But what we don't read here, and I hope you're not one of these folks that looks at this and says, look, he could do it and so can I. Because this is clearly a medical prescription to help him to fix what was ailing him. And I'm reminded by uh, my daughter, especially, and all the medical stuff that she has taken. Folks, we don't need to go and try to self-medicate and things like that and think that, you know, a bottle of alcohol, that'll just solve everything. There are good medicines that we can get from the doctor and prescriptions to handle more specific things. Better than just going out and saying, oh, this bottle of, who's down the road? Jack Daniels. That'll do it. That's the wrong way of thinking about it. That's the wrong way of thinking about it. One more thing. Um, that, was, that was my medical advice. You got it. Here's some more medical advice here from Proverbs, from the scriptures. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink. It's very clear what we're talking about here. Lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing. So here's another thing where here you got a guy on his deathbed and he's ailing. And he's in anguish, bitter of heart. Has the connotation of he's in anguish. All right, we're giving this guy something to ease his pain. He's dying. He's dying and we don't want to just sit here and watch him suffer. We're going to help him out. But folks, for me to go to here and say, oh yeah, that's what I'm going to do. In my mind, you, you better be run over by a truck before you decide that this is what you're going to do to, to get some drink in because otherwise it's, it's just not right. It's just not right. And you don't have to answer to me, but you do have to answer to God. And these... These are God's words. These are God's writings. Well, one, one more argument that, that people, you know, people say it's okay as long as you don't get drunk. And they might look at something like, and some of these might seem a little crazy, but Ephesians 5, 18, do not be drunk with wine, we're going to excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And you, you look at that and you think, well, man, is Paul really saying, hey, as long as you don't get drunk, it's okay? Is that really what Paul is saying here? Well, of course not. Not if you look at the context. The context is telling him that, hey, there's a contrast between being like the world and filling yourself with alcohol versus filling yourself with the Holy Spirit. And Paul is not saying a little wine is okay as long as you don't get drunk. He's contrasting two opposites here, full of wine and full of the Holy Spirit. But you know, there are some denominations, again, that teach, hey, it's okay as long as you don't get drunk. But to me, Peter answers this argument the best. Because Peter takes a look in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 3. And he says this to the pilgrims there. He says, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lust. Now listen, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, according to the New King James, and abominable idolatries. And what you find out here is that there are three terms, drunkenness, revelries, and drinking parties, and drunkenness, or excess of wine in the King James, is from a Greek word, oinophlugia, and it means bubbling over with wine. And the scholars will tell you, this is somebody that's drunk so much they're plastered. They've drunk so much intoxicating drink, they don't even know which way is up. Well, and then you look at the next one, revelings or carousing, and that is from a word called kamas. Kamas is not as strong as oinoflugia, 
Kamas, according to Thayer's, is a nocturnal and riotous procession. That's why you see these terms reveling, carousing, stuff like that. A half-drunken and frolicsome fellows. And he goes on through this whole thing about how they're going around looking for trouble to get into and just having a good old time because they're halfway out of their mind. They're buzzed like a lot of people do after work. They go down to the club or the bar and they get crazy and they really shouldn't be driving home because they're out of their mind. And this is the kind of thing that, that we read here. But the third term... <laughs> Banquetings, banquetings or drinking parties is from patos. And patos literally means drinking, according to Thayer's and word study concordance. And trench says not necessarily excessive. So it may be a drink, two drinks. Most of the versions or translations translated as drinking or banquetings or drinking parties. But you know, the way this word is used elsewhere, it means drinking. And it may not mean a party. And it may apply to you. It may apply to you by yourself. It doesn't have to be plural and it doesn't have to be anything like a party. So, signifying drinkings, but not necessarily a drinking party. Patos is literally drinking without reference to the amount being drunk. So what we need to learn from this is that Peter refers to drunkenness, revelings, and drinkings, or drinking parties, and he covers it from the most to the least, from heavy to light, from finished to just getting started on people that are abusing alcohol. And what does he say? He says, it is something that you should have gotten over when you came to Christ. It's something that you needed to stop when you came to the Lord, when you were converted. So friends, let's recognize the Bible does point out that there are different degrees of drinking alcoholic beverages. And it says, no more, the time has passed. Another medical moment. According to the American Medical Association, there's no minimum which can be set where alcohol will have absolutely no effect. I didn't really know this. Drunkenness is a condition which actually begins with the first drink and progresses further when more is consumed. And even as little as 0.01% of alcohol in the blood removes inhibitions, lessens control, weakens willpower, feels good, gives false confidence, impairs judgment, and dulls attention. Folks, can we afford to be in a situation where we don't have full control of our minds and try to resist temptation? And another one says, according to, uh, oh, I, I just read that and I didn't click it. There we go. When drinking alcohol, you become impaired even before you begin to feel buzzed. So how can you even know? You hear so many people saying, oh, no, I, I got this. I'll know when it's time to quit. Well, how can you? Because there's no telling what your brain is going to tell your body. You don't know because you are not in control. So let's take this full circle and go back to where we came from. As we close, 1 Peter 1.13 says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind to be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace of God that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This word sober here from Nepho, we read it before. But it means to abstain from wine, thus to be sober, to be free from every form of mental and spiritual drunkenness, completely unaffected by wine, free from the influence 
of intoxicants. And Peter implores these pilgrim Christians who are going through all kinds of problems and persecutions and turmoil not to be tempted to do what they might have done in the world and try to drink it all away. Don't go to the bottle. Turn to the Lord. Trust in the Lord. He says it is the absolute opposite of what they needed to do. Don't go to the drink. Go to Christ. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others. Let us watch and be sober. Paul encourages the brethren by the same way. They're going through persecution and turmoil not to be tempted to do what they might have done in the world. Don't turn to what I, when I grew up, they used to call it the devil's brew. You heard that? Don't turn to that. It's not going to help you. It's not going to help you. It's going to make everything fuzzy. It's not going to bring any clarity to you. It will muddle things up. You'll get buzzed and high and you'll be in a stupor, but you won't be able to make good decisions about really how to solve issues and how to rely on the Lord. Because we're told, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And I'll tell you what, if I turn to an alcoholic beverage when I'm having a hard time, and my brain starts to get fuzzy after, after a little bit. It's like taking the keys and handing them to Satan and saying, here, take me for a spin. Because when I'm not thinking clearly, I'm liable to do whatever, whatever he wants me to do. And there may be no going back. And once you start, folks, once you start, there may not be an end. How can I be of sound mind and in the right mind if I'm willing to short circuit my command center and scramble my eggs and otherwise stupefy my mind? I'm basically saying, here you go, Satan. Do whatever you want. So I want to encourage you tonight. If you do drink, if you do drink alcoholic beverages, please think about it. Please stop that. Get help. Do whatever you need to do. You may not be able to get better on your own. And on the other hand, you youngsters who maybe hear about things like this, but you've, you've never headed down this road before, I encourage you, don't. Don't even think about it. It's the worst thing you can do to your life, both physically and spiritually, is to start down this road. Because there are so many people that just cannot stop. The best thing to do is don't ever start. Don't ever start. And you'll be very thankful for that. Trust in the Lord. Come to the Lord. The Lord has the answer for everything. And if you have woes, if you have problems, if you have troubles, the Lord has the answers. The Lord implores you to come to him. You know, the passages that talk about all you who labor and are heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. Don't turn to chemicals. Don't turn to drinks or smoking things or injecting things like that. That will not help you at all. Come to the Lord. Because those things, though people might say, well, they can help you for a little bit. Folks, they can't help you get eternal life. They can't solve problems to such an extent that you know that you can be with the Lord when this life is over. They just can't do it. But Christ can. The blood of Christ can. And the water of baptism can. If you're here this evening and you need help, like I said, We'd love for you to come and tell us how we can help you. If you don't necessarily need help with this, but maybe you just need help with, hey, 
I don't have Christ yet, and I think I need Christ. We would love to talk to you about that as well. So if you have a need that we can help you with, please come right now as we stand and sing the song.